episode number six in the mix coming to you live and direct from Oakland California and we're so happy that you're here with us today and indeed very grateful for everybody that's been checking in with the podcast and uh, sending me messages emails and responses it's very uh, empowering to receive so I just want to let everyone know that's reached out that I hear you loud and clear and very grateful as I said for the listenership Um, I'll start off with a couple of thank yous to folks that are making a difference in the industry or uh, our lives and my career and just folks that I want to give thanks. So we'll start with the good peeps at jambase.com. Jambase has been a pioneer in uh, the culture reporting for the jam band world and all the extended diasporas. Uh, I got my start doing uh, this journalism thing with Jambase back in 1999. At the time, uh, it was conceived and uh, Created by a fellow named Andy Gadiel, a visionary himself, and uh, a young woman by the name of Deanne Herman was my editor, and uh, she's now Deanne Berkowitz, um, and is a part of the CID Considerate Dan organization with her husband, the great Dan Berkowitz. But uh, her humble beginnings date back to Jambase, and she was my editor and a fantastic one at that. So shout out Super D, Andy Gadiel, and the great lineage uh, dating back at Jambase. Going to Teddy Kartsman and uh, Aaron Case, the Case Man, also a great writer and editor. And of course, the one and only Dennis Cook, who's you know among my absolute favorite music journalists of all time. So yeah, jambase.com, still doing the damn thing with Scotty B, Scott Bernstein, great editor, uh, handling things over at Jambase, and Jambase has always been good to me. So we're going to say thanks to jambase.com. Go see live music. And while we're on the topic of thank yous, I also want to thank the, the good folks at Silverback Management. Uh, Silverback is located in the Los Angeles area. They're a SoCal company, but they represent artists all over. Um, from Slightly Stupid to Dumpsta Funk. Uh, they work with Carl Denson. They work with uh, George Porter Jr. Um, they had a hand in the Meters performance uh, down there for the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. And Silverback is run by a fellow named John Phillips, who's a really interesting and successful cat in the music game and has always been really good to me as well. So I want to say a shout out to John Phillips and Silverback Management and uh, also shout out to Johnny Ray. Uh, Johnny Ray, former WWOZ radio host down there in New Orleans and works with Silverback Management and works with George Porter. 
And Johnny was the first to publicly uh, let peeps know that uh, the Stones would be heading to New Orleans Jazz Fest this year. Now the cat's out of the bag, but before that happened, it was Johnny who uh, we got a credit with the scoop. Um, so, yeah, the Stones are coming to Jazz Fest, which is definitely news to this podcast and news to my listeners. Jazz Fest is a big part of the Upful life. And last year was my uh, 16th year going down to the Jazz Fest in New Orleans. My mom Irma's 10th year, and uh, it's really the kind of like the Super Bowl of of the jam, jazz, funk, and extended uh, scene, if you will, and sort of the annual convention of sorts of all the heaviest hitters in the music game and special shows. And of course, it surrounds the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival at the fairgrounds, which added an eighth day, uh, added a first Thursday this year. But the Stones will be appearing on second Thursday, and word is that uh, the WWOZ Brass Pass, which is a flat fee that gets you into the uh, fairgrounds for the entire Jazz Fest at the time, seven days, um, that won't apply for the Stones Day, and I understand the ticket price is going to be marked up considerably to account for the Stones' uh, enormous guarantee. But nonetheless, uh, the cachet of having the Stones at Jazz Fest is pretty special. And uh, our, our man, Carl Denson, the Diesel, uh, took over for the late Bobby Keys on saxophone with the Rolling Stones, thanks to the Lenny Kravitz cosign. And uh, we'll be stoked to see Carl on stage with the Stones. And I'm sure, you know, Carl is the king of the Jazz Fest late night. But being that the Stones will be on tour... I'm guessing that he really is only going to play the one gig or so when the Stones are in town on that second Thursday. So that's going to be a, a hot ticket down there at Jazz Fest. Uh, and uh, I'll be sure to make sure I get to that gig, whatever it is and wherever it is. So yeah, Jazz Fest added the day, bring in the Stones. That's some pretty big news. While we're talking about Denson, uh, his fantastic guitar player and Carl Denson signing universe is a friend of the show and a friend of mine named DJ Williams. And DJ has a really dope side project called Shots Fired, which is a sort of a revolving cavalry of musicians that he takes on tour to play songs that he's written and some choice covers. They're going to be coming through California uh, next week. And I guess by the time you're listening to it, it might actually be happening. Uh, listening to this podcast, the shows will be underway. But uh, if you get a chance or you see shots fired on on the road in a neighborhood near you, I highly recommend it. Very funky, very groovy, authentic R&B, soul, funk music. So uh, DJ Williams, Shots Fired. We'll be doing some Up For Life stuff uh, with DJ and uh, his crew in the coming weeks and months. We've got a big show here in the Bay Area with uh, Dim and Saints, who are another friends of the show and uh, huge fan of Dim and Saints, what they've been doing for the past five years or so. So they're headlining uh, the Dim and Saints live experience, which will include Narducci on saxophone, and, uh, MIDI horns, and uh, Thriftworks, the great Jake Atlas. Thriftworks will be on the bill as well as Ataya, and that's in Berkeley on December 8th, and we'll have some content uh, with Upful Life for that show, as well as the Closey Goop Steppa show in Berkeley on December 27th. And uh, December 28th, uh, we've got a ridiculous uh, assortment of choices here in the Bay Area, including Erica Badu, 
Polish ambassador, Carl Denson's Tiny Universe and his annual birthday show, uh, the California Honey Drops. And uh, from what I understand, Ghostlight has been booked at Terrapin uh, for that night as well. So that's what's coming up in the next couple of weeks for me and some of the uh, coverage that I'll be providing. And I'm sure the podcast will tie in accordingly. Very much looking forward to uh, December here in the Bay Area. Also in the coming weeks, uh, we'll have my uh, annual favorite album, Listicle, on Upful Life, where we do the 18 favorite albums of 2018 with a handful of honorable mentions. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for that article coming in a couple of weeks. Um, So that gives you an idea of what kind of on my docket, uh, if you're curious what's going down in Upful Life. Now, I just kind of want to take a quick detour here and interject before we go any further on all the wonderful art and culture that we discuss here on the Upful Life podcast. I want to bring some attention to the campfire in Butte County, um, which is now 100% contained, uh, but was the deadliest wildfire in modern California history. The blaze killed at least 88 people with more than 200 still unaccounted for. And Cal Fire estimates the fire destroyed more than 15,800 structures, including, including thousands of single residences, and mainly in and around Paradise, uh, a town of 27,000 people in the Sierra foothills, uh, east of Chico. So I used to live up in Nevada City, California. Uh, for the better part of five years, minus uh, my one-year timeout. And uh, was close to some fires in that area, and definitely am plugged into the communities up there. Um, so I'm sure that people have been hearing about the fires for a couple weeks now, and I just didn't want to let an opportunity go by to let people know how they could get involved or help in some capacity. Um Basically, uh, I'm just going to read off how you can get involved, and then I'll put a link on the the Up Full Life podcast site on Podbean and also on UpFullLife.com in this episode. Uh, you'll see a, a link where you can find out further information. But uh, California Volunteers, which is the state agency that oversees and encourages volunteer efforts across California... They say that financial contributions are the best way to help people in the immediate aftermath of a disaster. And the organization, a quote, strongly encourages donors to carefully research charitable organizations prior to donating to ensure that their donated funds will have the desired revolt. Close quote. Um, these are some of the organizations that are currently accepting monetary donations. And then there's a list um, which, including phone numbers and websites and text numbers, so forth. Some of the main ones include North Valley Community Foundation, Butte County Office of Education, Caring Choices, um, and then some of the more standard, like the Red Cross, Salvation Army, United Way, etc. Also the North Valley Animal Disaster Group. Um, so yeah the wildfires that are ripping across the communities. It seems like it happens every year. And uh, despite the best efforts of the 
current commander-in-chief. Um, we're not going to politicize the tragedy or talk about, um, really discuss it beyond uh, informing my listeners on how they can help. Um, maybe we'll have some uh, wildfire discussion um, in future episodes. I don't know. It's a, it's a topic that touches close to my heart for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is I live out here and I do a lot of agriculture work and uh, some of the people in that community are the most directly affected. So I uh, just wanted to do my due diligence and sort of uh, stop the, the talk about culture and all this fun shit and uh, maybe take a moment and just honor the people that have been affected, the survivors, those that did not survive, and everything that was lost to this senseless blaze. Um, so yeah, there you have it. Check out the link on uh, Upful Life's Podbean uh, or UpfulLife.com. And uh, please, do what you can. So yeah, um, back to episode number six. We're going to talk a little bit about the long-awaited release of Oxnard, which is the third full-length LP from Anderson Pack. Can't really remember a more or a longer wait for a anticipated album quite like this one. Maybe going back to like when Wu Tang Forever dropped in May of '97. But now we had the advent of all the Instagram hype and all his special appearances. And, of course, uh, the passing of Mac Miller, which uh, somebody that was very close to Anderson Pack. Um, there's a lot to unpack with this record. And at first I really wanted to talk about the whole record and do a whole segment on it. But as I go back to it repeatedly and read some other people's takes on it and talk to friends, fellow fans about it, it's a, it's a polarizing record, uh, not the least of which is because the expectations were so high after he delivered a nearly perfect album in his sophomore LP, Malibu, which dropped in early 2016, as I recall. Um, or maybe even 2015, I have to look that up. It might have been late 2015. Uh, I digress. Uh, it's been about three years on the wait, and... Um, yeah, well, let's start with the elephant in the room, which is his casual misogyny peppered throughout the record, most notably in the second song, Head Low, which, I mean, who doesn't like blowjobs? There's just a certain flippant nature to his use of the word bitch repeatedly. Um, he also, remade, in essence, remade Jay-Z's Girls, which is, you know, while humorous, um, pretty dismissive and in 2018 our consciousness doesn't allow for that sort of marginalizing of women in the culture or um, not to say it doesn't happen and i mean people point to like snoop dog you know too short all these cats but those are cats from a different era and i'm not excusing that and shit i sang along to biatch a thousand times over but the idea of doing that now is kind of cringy, and the fact that Anderson Pack is so, uh, he's a, he's not just about some hood shit, or violence, or 
he's not coming at it like mob deep or even Nas. Um, he's his own man. And, uh, you know, he's got a lot of incredible women creators in his life, not the least of which is like the queen Erica Badu was very fond of Pac. So, you know, we struggle with the misogyny a bit, but on the other side, he made basically two thirds of Oxnard is killing um, and very diverse in approach and styles and has great sit-ins or excuse me, features um, like Pusha T and Kendrick Lamar and J. Cole um, production from Chris Daddy Dave and, and just an amazing uh, assortment of songs and song craft but it is not Malibu and there is the misogyny and there is this sort of era of cockiness and rock stardom that Anderson Pack seems to carry subsequent to his enormous meteoric rise to success on the heels of uh, Malibu. So I've actually recorded this take a couple times because my opinions have changed and I thought maybe I was a little light on the misogyny a few few recordings. Then I didn't mention it at all because I didn't want to start shit and then I felt terrible about that because it is important. Um, and I woke up and, of course, I saw Dennis Cook's post on the matter. And then John Spies tagged me in a Black Thought post where there was a sidebar conversation about whether or not Pox Oxnard was a disappointing record. You know, and there's something to be said about being like a Caucasian guy in these conversations, too. Because, you know, we don't want to see color. We don't want to talk about color. But we're obviously living in very troubling times on a racial level. And... uh I just want to acknowledge that who I am when uh, making judgments as such. And you know what? I'm not a part of the culture. And maybe it's okay to call each other bitch or use the N-word. But I don't participate in that and don't really co-sign that. Um, but I'm also not going to tell other people how they're going to talk, especially when the culture belongs to them. I just wanted to be heard for a second about uh, the polarizing nature of this Anderson Pack album and how you know I'm enjoying listening to it repeatedly and uh, I think it's a good album but I am a bit troubled by his flippancy and uh, casual misogyny that said the song trippy with Chris Daddy Dave on the boards and J. Cole rapping uh, is a fantastic yin and yang kind of exercise I really love it and I recommend it but I'm going to play um, a different song uh, a song that really touched me on a profound level my favorite track on the album, after only listening for like a week and a half so far, is called Cheers, and it uh, features a Q-Tip from A Tribe Called Quest. Um, Anderson Pack has a very close relationship with Tip and with Tribe, and has actually performed uh, with Tribe um, in uh, the, subsequent to Fife Dog's passing, uh, who is the other MC in A Tribe Called Quest, who died a couple of years ago himself. And Anderson Pack was very close to Mac Miller, who tragically died of a drug overdose uh, at the end of this past summer. So the song Cheers is, uh, is in memoriam to both of them. And it starts with like a live band backing, much akin to what Mac Miller was doing uh, before his untimely passing. Um, so the song starts off with some really dope live band hip-hop vibes and sort of transitions through this kind of gospelish passage into some more traditional hip-hop production when Q-Tip grabs the mic and uh, basically 
uh, pays tribute to Fife Dog um, with some proper MC skills from the abstract poetic himself. And, uh, and Mac Miller's uh, passing is clearly weighing very heavily on Anderson Pack, and as such, Pack delivers a heartfelt and a very emotive verse and a half about his dearly departed friend, uh, Mac Miller. So that's the song Cheers, and I'm going to play that song uh, momentarily. And then at the conclusion of Cheers, um, I'm going to come back and uh, read a bio that I've written about our episode six guest, Random Rab. Now, shameless plug, I write bios for artists. Up Full Life is open for that kind of business. Bios, EPKs, really any kind of media placements than an artist of... of uh, independent artist or somebody that's just uh, looking to, you know, upgrade uh, how they're presenting themselves in the industry uh, to talent buyers and, you know, labels and producers and so forth. So I was lucky and blessed to be called upon by uh, my episode six guest, Random Rab, to sort of reshape his bio. Uh, So I'm going to read that and then we're going to go into a two-part interview with Rab, uh, which I conducted uh, during or before and after his show here in Berkeley a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the show was with Dirtwire. It was a sold-out show at the Cornerstone, and I was lucky to uh, get some time with Rab. So we did about 25 minutes, and then he played a gig. So uh, during that split, I'm going to play my favorite Random Rab song called Cloud Kings, and then there's a second part to the Random Rab interview. And uh, at the conclusion of the Random Rab interview... I, uh, I take a moment, or I should say I take many moments, the extended portion of the end of the podcast. Uh, I get pretty personal. I talk about how Random Rab came into my life and um, how he kind of opened the door for me with the West Coast festival culture, unbeknownst to him, um, and his co-sign on a professional level went a long way to kind of getting me in the door out here. And uh, so I kind of uh, break that down of how we met at Burning Man and I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, after I tell about how we met and the effect he had on my career and life a couple years ago, then I get really personal, and uh, at the end of the pod, uh, discuss how um, my father's passing while I was incarcerated and how Random Rab's music uh, was integral to my healing uh, or processing or just going through it, and again, I'm not going to spoil it, you'll have to listen, but... uh, I talk a little bit about how that uh, came full circle with Rab all the way back at Burning Man and how I was uh, blessed to be able to mourn and pay tribute and honor my father at the Temple of Burning Man. Um, And Random Rab figures into that too. So uh, uh, I've been waiting for the right time to go down that road and maybe talk a little bit about my own personal journey, um, but I didn't want to force it. However, uh, we, we touch on it in the interview with Rab a little bit, so I thought I might as well explain the sort of whole cylindrical nature of the journey and w- what I've lived through and uh, losing my father and uh, everything associated with that as it pertains to Rab and the process that I sort of went through. Um, so that's episode six in a nutshell. Uh, I'm going to start with this uh, Anderson Pack jam featuring q-tip called cheers and uh rest in peace mac miller rest in peace fife dog and uh then we'll be back with uh, the random rap segment
You're listening to the Up Full Life Podcast, episode number six, and I'm your host, B. Getz. Yes, indeedy. And I can see the world from here They ask me where I'm going from here Shit anywhere, long as the runway is clear Shit, the music business moving too fast for me Wishing I still had Mac with me Yes, Lord How do you tell a nigga slow it down When you're living just as fast as him I couldn't understand when I seen the stretched out cold on the pavement Niggas catch TKO's on occasion Wishing I could save him What was I to say? I was doing dicks, dipping in and out of state was going in to get away Sick of feeling so out of place Wishing I could save you What was I to say? Wishing I could save you But now it's too late Now is this really what I want? Is it really worth the pain? Now am I really an asshole? Fuck what you say Don't do me no favors Let's get back to basics We live for today, bitch Fuck up my way, bitch I'm losing all my aces I'm running out of patience Got some pretty faces Knowing what my name is Up in high places I got some new neighbors They don't really Station, but when they see the spaceship, they just think I rap or some form of entertainment. But they don't know I'm black, young, gifted, and amazing. Yeah. You know I had to close my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I had to free my mind. Yeah. 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 I knew I had to lay on all the lies. Knowing that I can't do it on my own. And you got the pain, till I come and die. About to run away, think I'm going yeah. home. You know I'm working on a world. See the world from here. I know you somewhere in the atmosphere. I know someday I'll meet you halfway there. Cheers. They say there's nothing you can do about it. Can't say that I'm new to saw. Wishing I could take your problems, trade them for a little more time. But you carry you out the bottom. The weight of the world, I got it. Spotted you on my shoulder. The greatest honor to know you. I gotta be honest with you. I hate you ain't in the picture. I hate on the fake niggas claiming like they gon' really miss you. I know there's no one to blame. I may be the point that I'm missing, but I needed a minute. Just give me a minute You know I had to close my eyes My eyes Yeah, yeah I had to Reminisce to face the pain of back in the days before you were dog and you were just pup Banging beats and bringing bitches back to the tour bus Excuse me y'all, I know this pack shit, I just need a second It's Q-tip and it's bitch and I'm just in here reflecting Head on collisions with memories in the intersection Looking in my rear view, wishing I could be near you The freeways of my mind have crowded with traffic The good times that we had and the bad habits Look at me now, look around, last man standing grooming Crying like a child trying to understand it So sick of sending flowers to all of my brother's mamas Don't know what's harder, fighting trauma or keeping the promise you can 
fashion breath is a blessing without a question But niggas don't get the message until they get disconnected My story ain't over, I'm still turning pages But the picture I painted with you in it has faded My queen, my dreams, and even my wages I know what it means to lose everything when you made it Rags to the riches and back to the rags is a motherfucker The consequence of putting all of your chips in one bucket To be honest, I feel like getting right back to these comments You motherfuckers keep the drama I'm working on the world for me and I can see the world from here I know there must be something after here I know someday I'll meet you halfway there In the atmosphere Cheers! Before we get to the interview itself, uh, I just want to familiarize some folks uh, with Random Reb, uh, the artist and the human being, and why he's so important to me and thousands of others. He's uh, held in such high esteem and rarefied air as he is. Um, just to give you guys a little bit of uh, background here, I'm going to read a bio that I actually wrote for him. Uh, as he was releasing his album last year, Formless Edge. Um, I was lucky to be called upon to help contribute to the rollout of the record. Uh, one of my responsibilities was to reshape or revamp, and basically rewrite his bio uh, at the time. It's something that, you know, is an ever-morphing uh, biography for any artist that releases albums uh, as prolifically as he does. The, the bio needs to sort of evolve. Um, so at the time, this was the biography that I wrote for him for folks that just wanted to get familiar, if you will. Emerging from his own distinct corner of the West Coast electronic music scene, Random Rab offers a powerful and unique contribution to sonic exploration. Often referred to as the master of emotion, his music is patently beautiful and melodic, with diverse influences ranging from trip-hop to classical and Arabic to bass-driven excursions. His songs are considered anthemic and timeless. As a multi-instrumentalist and singer, his compositions are organic, uplifting, and stand on their own as a distinct genre. Rab has produced 10 full-length albums, with his 11th Formless Edge launching on June 16, 2017. Random Rab is also world-renowned for legendary, heartwarming live performances, from rocking packed nightclubs to cosmic sets in the Himalayas. 
headlining at the Pyramids of Giza in Egypt for the celebration on December 21, 2012, to his ubiquitous famed sunset or sunrise sets at festivals around the world. Fans from sea to, si to shining sea are anxiously anticipating his upcoming set during the eclipse on the main stage of Global Eclipse Gathering. From the halcyon days of an embryonic El Cerco troupe through the upcoming ceremonial Global Eclipse Gathering, Rab's robust catalog simmers, mined 20,000 leagues beneath the baseline. A luminary of the West Coast's psychedelic bass music diaspora, Random Rab has consistently served as a vessel for messages from within our hearts. Over the past 17 plus years, Rab Clinton has evolved into a sort of whimsical wizard, creating songs of faith and devotion, and inspiring a generation of dreamers to go even deeper. Formless Edge is yet another in a vaunted vault of masterpiece theater. His is a music, a gumbo of cosmic curtain, evangelical folk, and holy ghost gospel. Its genetic code is an amalgam of influence and inspiration, of deftly blended instrumentation over organic electronics, the sonics of nature, and a mystical healing curandero. Random Rev has blurred the boundaries between genre and scene since before the millennium, and his patient, provocative journeys for both sunrise and sunset have become the stuff of legends at festivals the world over. So there you have it. Uh, that was a bio that I wrote for Rab uh, 18 months ago or so. And uh, yeah, it kind of breaks down uh, not just his background, but also the prism in which I and, uh, like I said, thousands of others see and hear and feel him. So yeah, really enjoying... Uh, the different facets of Random Rab's uh, live performance. And lately, he's been playing a lot of guitar and has a very special guitar, which he tells us about in the interview. Um, but he's making music with drum machines and live percussion and bass and a rack of synths and different keyboards and stuff. So he's not a press play guy. I mean, he's building his music right there in front of you and it's, it's not like a looper thing either. I mean, it's, it's just a very, um, creative and elaborate way for one person to make music. Um, I find it to be, uh, really unique in his own genre. And, um, as such, uh, I have, uh, great honor and privilege to have him on the show. Welcome. We're here with the Up for Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. 
I'm here with uh, none other than Random Rab, uh, live in Berkeley, California, outside the Cornerstone. Uh, Rab's here in town, he's on tour right now, and he's playing a show, a sold-out show here in Berkeley with Dirtwire. And he was nice enough to invite us into his uh, tour mobile, this awesome cozy Sprinter van, for a chat uh, before his set. So uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, happy to have you here, and uh, been a huge fan of yours for several years now, and I, I feel... Um, very emotionally connected to your music and and your journey I feel like really transmits to a lot of people on a lot of levels so it's an honor to be here with you thank you and uh, you know I'm looking forward to just kind of chopping it up but not everyone knows that's listening uh, all about you mm-hmm. even though you're you know very well known in this community and you know a pillar of you know sort of the music festival world that I live in out here but I just kind of want to get people familiar with with you so uh, you currently live in Asheville, Oregon, but from what I understand, you're from Fort Wayne, Indiana? Yep. Uh, I'm originally from Fort Wayne and then moved out to the West Coast in like 97 and then lived in the Bay Area for um, about 10 years. And then I've been in Ashland um, and then kind of now I'm just kind of been a, kind of splitting some of my time in Colorado, Boulder, Colorado as well. But yeah, oh. it's just like my home is now the West, the West. Right on. I like to think. <laughs> Boulder's really cool, man. Yeah. Uh, have you been sinking into that community a little bit? Yeah, well, it's, it was pretty easy. It's just been kind of like my... It's it's sort of Colorado, Denver, Boulder area has sort of become like the Nashville of electronic music. You know, such a scene Huge. there. Huge. And uh, so many musicians there. Um, so it's really been... Uh, an easy kind of adjustment to spend time there. I, I felt like I've all, in a way I've lived there for a long time. So, um, and yeah, so it's, it's, it all seems to just kind of flow together. And now, you know, these days it almost seems like, yeah, like where you live, does that even really, when you're a touring musician, I mean, it doesn't either really make a difference hardly. It's just kind of like where you kind of have your pillow, you know, <laughs> wherever you may roam. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Right on. Well, how old were you when you moved from Fort Wayne out to the West Coast? Well, I when I when I graduated high school, uh, my parents moved to Mexico, and then I followed them, and then um, lived in Mexico for a year, and then went up to Minnesota for a while, and then just got in my van and drove west. So uh, when I ended up in Oregon, I was probably like uh, 22 years old. Right on. Yeah. And uh, just a little bit of the research I did. Uh, as far as your background was that you were first uh, the first music that you got involved in was actually classical music mm-hmm. and did you play uh, instruments when you were young? Yeah, I played trumpet uh, so my main instrument was trumpet and um, I played in jazz band and uh, orchestra and pet band and all marching band and all that kind of stuff and did that for a long time and then I studied um, in college for a little while I had a music major and did trumpet kind of classical music theory stuff um, but then I was also in a heavy metal band simultaneously. And I remember, you know, like the thing about at least the school that I went to with the music theory courses, it was just a bunch of, it was music written by dead white men from, you know, Europe long ago. And that was really the only acceptable form of music. And my heavy metal wasn't really accepted as a form of music. So, um, I, after about a year, I decided that I didn't want to be a music major. I still wanted to just continue on my own from that point instead of kind of I don't know succumbing to the college level of of at least that college in Indiana you know what they wanted me to learn about music right on okay so uh you take off you get to the west coast were Mm -hmm. you already uh uh, putting any kind of effort into electronic music at that point no not at all actually I was uh acoustic guitar electric guitar you know band kind of rock band type stuff 
Um, what was some of the metal that you were in? I'm a, a metalhead. Before I was even a deadhead, I was a yeah. Slayer Metallica. <laughs> nice. I mean, I definitely loved Metallica and all that. I was, I think, I was more moved by like Tool and yeah. Rage Against the Machine and you know Pearl Jam. The whole Seattle grunge movement was. I was a big fan of all that. You know, Nirvana, Soundgarden, everything. Um, yeah. So it basically, that was that was my life. You know, like, that's one of the reasons I came out to the West because of all that music. Um, so yeah, that was, but then, then I, when I came out, I started, started a duo with my buddy Trippy Nick and we started to acquire some drum machines and some samplers and sequencers. And then that's how I got into electronic music as more of a way to replace the instrumentals we couldn't find. We wanted a drummer, we couldn't find a drummer. So we got a drum machine, you know, and next thing you got a sequencer. And when that project ended, I just had all this gear and I realized how powerful it was and how much I could make um, with just that equipment. Okay. Well, I, I often when I, you know, hear about the lore of Random Rab and, you know, obviously there's an iconic piece of journalism written by your friend Charles Shaw, The Church of Random Rab, which <laughs> actually was really inspiring to me as a journalist, uh, the, that portrait of you. And, uh, Anything that's ever kind of written about your history as an artist often starts with um, the El Circo troupe. And, you know, that's before my time. You know, I'll get to when I encountered you and first went to the burn and so forth. But, you know, decade plus before that, um, you got involved with the El Circo troupe. So for those who don't know, maybe talk a little bit about what that is and, you know, your role, if you will. Yeah, well, El Circo was, at first, it was just a group of, of friends who were into fire dancing and fashion and music. And it was right at the cusp of everybody sort of simultaneously discovering all of that together. And Tifa Novoa was the, um, was a, is a designer who has since passed. Um, she passed away... Trying to remember now, seven or eight years ago, um, and she was um, kind of like the the den mother, the godmother, the the sort of the anchor of this whole community, and the most incredible fashion designer ever. And her outfits, um, costumes, whatever, would take people to another world and make people feel like they were characters in another world. And we actually had this discussion about. Uh, Tiffa and I about how that's what I wanted to do with my music as well. It's like, and, and that other world was the same world. So whatever my music world, my music existed in was the same world that her um, costumes existed in. And through that and through fire dancing, we all, you know, kind of started an artist collective and we all went out to Burning Man. And I think that's when everything just kind of exploded for all creatively for all of us. And we decided to throw our own festival, and we called it El Circo. And through that, um, and then did a Burning Man camp, El Circo. And then it grew from there and became a really powerful, big um, artist collective. Um, at, I think at our peak, we, you know, we'd have meetings of, with like 50 people. And each person had some amazing, unique contribution. Um, and we created... Um, theater pieces, uh, kind of like alternative experimental theater with fire and, you know, like, like firing stage all inside of a, a domes and with all different types of characters. And um, Chris Houchin was one of the writers of our, um, I, 
I don't want to call it a play because it's it's I think that that really doesn't fully encapsulate what it really is. It's just kind of like bizarre theater. Um, and we did these shows, you know, every, mostly at Burning Man. You know, every year we'd come back and had our party on Wednesday night at Burning Man and did these amazing shows. And my main role was um, to the, the music. So, um, but it was all like working with the dancers, working with the uh, writer, working with Tiffa to customize the music for the show specifically. So it was kind of like a sound design and sound effects and music and everything sort of meshed into sort of like a soundscape. So I did the sound with music too. Um, so that was my role for many years. And um, I learned so much through that, how to work with people and also just to watch uh, so much talent come through and create such beauty and such unique beauty and really create a, a scene that I've, you know, I, I've seen ripple out from that and through the fashion, through the scene. And if it becomes something now that is, uh, it's morphed into something. And I mean, it's almost like dissolved into the ethers of what our community is and what Burning Man is. And, um, so I think it played a significant role in the aesthetic of a lot of the clothing that people are wearing as far as, you know, especially in the burner scene, the part the festival scene. Um, and when Tiffa passed though, um, you know, unfortunately that sort of, once the anchor was gone, once she was gone, the, it, you know, it continued on somewhat, but now it's sort of fizzled out and it doesn't really exist anymore. But, um, yeah, I'll always look back on those days as some of the most powerful inspirational uh, moments of my life. Wow. You just gave me a, a lot of gems to, to work with in there and so much that I wanted to touch on. First thing that came to mind, and I've thought this before, but never more so than what you described is it almost seems like it's in direct lineage to the Merry Pranksters and acid tests and Grateful Dead scene of like the late 60s, the sort of like psychedelic revolution and the art that came out of that and how that was a brief moment in time. Mm -hmm. But so much, all the people from that era in the Bay in the late 60s and the sort of the dead and everything that came out of that, you know, just went on for years and years and so much of another festival scene mm -hmm. was born out of that just like what you're describing and you know um, you're often mentioned along with uh, Tifa you know mm -hmm. in terms of uh, pioneers and people that really sort of paved the way for you know like you said the ripples and I think that as an organism uh, it's alive in so many different crews and camps and collectives artistically across really the world and uh, I, I wanted to ask you know and kind of transition into something relatively somewhat morbid, but you talked about um, Tiff and Novoa's death, and I understand you were the master of ceremonies of sorts at her funeral. Mm -hmm. um, um, I'll get to my own experience mm -hmm. with death and your music, but um, if you're comfortable, maybe talk a little bit about how do you approach, you know, because the theater and the bizarre theater and the I mean, everything we're talking about is colorful and fun and amazing art and, you know, the joy of living and this tragic death and somebody so close to you in such a pivotal role in this, you know, organism. What was that like to lead people through that experience? Well, I think that, I mean, it was very difficult for one. Sure. And it was, um, it was some, it's something that you don't want to do, you know, because you don't want to see a friend go and you don't want to, be the master of ceremonies for someone's funeral because you want them to be alive, you know? Yeah. So in a way it was, that, that was very hard and just trying to, you know, also looking out at all my friends, you know, um, 
and at, at this at that moment and and trying to hold it together was really incredibly difficult as well however um she through her art and through what we were creating as a group death was one of the main focuses of all you know of of what we were trying to understand and what we worked for and death was kind of the, 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 the crux, the, the message, like trying to understand the transition of death and not the morbidity of it, but the beauty of it and the transcendence. And so in a way it made it that a little bit easier for me because, you know, not that it's easy when you lose someone, but just having known that she how she would have wanted to it to be to feel for everyone and to see the beauty in her transition and to see the magic and see the um like because she was kind of like the breath of night you know she was her through her style she was like an owl you know she had this sort of like her work was very anchored in the moonlight um so yeah and it was beautiful and and in fact everyone um many people at the at the the funeral ceremony were wearing her outfits and so it was beautiful i mean to look out and see her uh her incredible work on everyone i mean i've never been to a funeral quite like that where it's just like everyone is so and it, it seemed so mystical and because it was you know um but yeah, it's it was it was um, a somber occasion, but you know she touched so many people's lives in so many ways that there was a lot there to celebrate, and there continues to be to this day. And so it is beautiful, um, and she taught everyone so much, and she did more in her shorter life than many people will do in a thousand lives. So um, it you know all respect and to her for for. You know, and I, the only thing is that, you know, we all miss her. And when she did leave, you know, everything fell apart. Like it had just kind of crumbled from there because without her, there was nothing left. There was no anchor, you know, matriarch. and right. yeah, she was the matriarch. And it really did. Um, we tried to hold it together without her and it just didn't work. So, um, you know, it makes you realize how how valuable she was to the community once someone's gone. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, I wanted to get to this a little bit later in our talk, but I just feel like it's natural to transition now. Um, you know, I haven't talked too much about uh, my own uh, path on the pod, but there was a period of time where I was incarcerated, mm -hmm. and uh, during that time, my father passed away. And uh, one of the things that I looked forward to, and I told you this story one mm -hmm. morning at Burning Man. I remember uh, very, yeah. very well. <laughs> Likewise. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to kind of ask about... You know, I would listen to the radio, a little transistor radio and headphones, and there was a local station, KVMR, from mm -hmm. Nevada City, and there was a, a DJ every other Thursday night named Faye who was prone to playing your music. Cool. And I would call and request stuff and request songs, and you know, the week that my uh, father passed, it was on a Tuesday, so on that Thursday, um, I called, and she could tell right away, you know, she was somebody I spoke to, mm -hmm. you know, every other week or so. And she could say, what was wrong? And I said, you know, this happened uh, with my father, and um, I would really like to hear some random rap music. Uh, and she played an extended portion of your morning mix, mm. uninterrupted, for like 40 minutes. Mm. And I could lay in my bunk. And um, it was a really powerful thing. Um, I was already connected to your music. But um, 
first of all, like when you make something like a morning mix, mm -hmm. uh, if you could maybe uh, open up the window into like your intention there and like what you are hoping to communicate or heal. And, and I know I'm not alone. I know that, mm -hmm. you know, humbly dozens, if not hundreds of people have come up to you and told you a similar version of that story in some capacity mm -hmm. um, where they lost someone in your music. Mm -hmm helped them um so explore yeah explore that a little yeah well I, I mean i've always thought for as far as my approach creatively um when i'm in the studio and i'm working on a piece of music is to always reflect on death as the teacher as the ultimate teacher and use that as a way as a tool and the concept of it as a tool to help me create something that's going to be worth something to me, you know, worth something more than just a song. I mean, not that you can't make songs that aren't using that as an anchor. I mean, there's plenty of beautiful music that isn't that. But um, for me, it's somehow when I reflect on that concept, it helps me sort of understand the importance of sound and how profound it can be and actually with the morning mix it was um that was actually something that was asked of me to make uh, when andrew jones is um his father passed and he asked me to make that mix you actually told me that that morning when i mm. robot heart when yeah talked. that's right yeah and you had gone to the temple with him and so yeah 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 so he that was i mean what an honor you know i mean yeah. one, of, one of my uh, favorite people and best friends and and, uh, and it was such a he was, you know, I mean, anyone loses their father, and he asked me to make that. So I, uh, when I approached that mix, I mean, I, how, that's the highest form of reverence you can ever have for a piece of music, you know, or, or mix or whatever. Um, so um, that was my approach with that mix, and that feeling though of just respect and honor. It, it's like it's like the same way that you would respect and honor the loss of someone that is so close to you is the same reverence and respect that you can bring to your creativity as well, to your art. If you can respect your art in the same way that you respect the loss of someone close to you, then you, the, for me, that means you've reached like the pinnacle of what you're, and it's not about your ego. It's not about um, the party. It's not about hooking up with chicks. It's not about any of that shit. It's about the real shit and the real uh, essence of life, which is, the, which is intertwined with the essence of death. So, that's sort of the approach. I mean, you know, no one can encapsulate what death is through sound or... or. Um. Now, we were talking a moment ago, uh, after we took a little breather, about um, this morning mix and uh, communicating uh, healing through song. And obviously there's a somber minor tone and sort of broodingness to a lot of that music and really a lot of your early music mm -hmm. so uh and we might have to do part of this question now and maybe yeah. part later but um i think it's safe to say that you know you talked about the pacific northwest and soundgarden nirvana and the sort of uh grunge scene and it's mm -hmm. no secret that there's a lot of dark emotion that fuels that music and um we talk about you know your first album epicycle and uh basically you as an artist back then all the way up to maybe Tiff's mm -hmm. death if you will um your music had uh, a sort of darker esoteric ethereal tone to it minor tones mm -hmm. um and your music 
in the latter start, part of your career is uh, just more joyful and more exuberant, more mm -hmm. meditative in a, in a, you know, that's just how I hear mm -hmm. it. So I'm curious, um, you know, what informed that path from darkness mm -hmm. to light? And uh, the reason I ask is because, like I told you before we started, this is about human resiliency and inspiration. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've talked at length in the past about your own battles with depression in the early part of your, mm -hmm. your music career mm -hmm. and really your life up until mm -hmm. then. So, you know, how did you put that into the music? And, you know, at what point did you turn the corner where you embraced your happy self? Well, it's interesting that because I never really thought of it as being happy and sad because I feel like those are um, broad strokes. Well, well, it's it's they're effective strokes, but they're they're uh, it's it's a, it's a very being happy and being sad are like emotions, right? But joy and sorrow is kind of the more the way I like to sort of look at it. Where sorrow, you could be happy and be full of sorrow. You could have sorrow for the entire existence of the planet and yet still be happy. And you can have so much joy in your life, but you could still be sad because some, maybe you're, you know, something bad happened today. And so you're sad, but you actually are filled with joy. Um, so I think if you're filled with sorrow and sadness, well, then, you know, you're in a tough spot. That's like when you're depressed, right? right. <laughs> but I, I like to think of uh, being able to hold on to the concepts of sorrow and joy without that being connected to my current emotional state like so I can really delve into the feelings of sorrow and still be totally happy it's not about whether I'm happy sad or not so um, I feel like I've been exploring more joyfulness uh, because um, when my son was born and I was so obsessed with death for so long and like literally like kind of researching and trying to understand like crossing over into other realms with ayahuasca and like all of these like like what is death and how can I really focus on that so much and then when my son was born it just like it, it felt and he's eight now it felt like I just wanted to get take some space from that idea and really work on the newness and the freshness and the beauty of like spring and life and 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 more joyful kind of celebration of, of this new life and not be bogged down with all those concepts. I think also, you know, as an artist, you know, you have to constantly be working on new, or at least for me, I feel like you need to kind of explore new regions of your brain, new regions of emotion, new re regions of your soul. And I had been focused on this one sound for so long that I wanted to kind of branch out and really felt like I got a little too close to the sun with all of that. <clears throat> and when um, I felt like I had explored that region to the point where it was negatively impacting my emotional state to focus on so much sorrowfulness yeah. that I started to become sad in a way. And I needed to take a break from emotionally and spiritually from just being completely focused on this one thing, you know. And it's, <clears throat> I, you know, there's a part of me that kind of regrets not continuing that path. I mean, not really, but like there's sometimes I think, oh, maybe I should just have gone deeper down that hole. But I, I think it was, an, I needed to take some space. And I'm actually going back into that space now of more the sorrowful stuff with my new album that hasn't been released yet. I've been really exploring the kind of darker stuff now, again, because I feel like I've matured and able to handle it in a different way. So it's, it's like an ebb and flow of creativity and wanting to just explore different things and different ways of approaching it. And um, 
also not being a victim of the expectations of what my I think fans want yeah. from me, you know, or um, because that can create a lot of weird pressure on you because then it would be a lot of more artificial of um, uh, 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 music um, so I think a lot of people might have been like hey what happened where did Random Rab go he used to be like this and now he's like this and like this is weird for me and like I don't know I don't think anymore but like as an artist um, I think it's important not to be um, uh, in fear of the, your fans and what their judgment sure. might be on your, of your creativity it's just to do what you want do what you feel and then in time you'll just create what needs to be created in the moment yeah, I feel like all artists, at least not all, but many artists that I've been a fan with, of and connected to emotionally and paid attention to their career arc, um, they're distinct eras. And it's colored by whether it's a band members or your own life and where you are and the birth of a child. And, you know, perfect example is a guy like Bob Dylan. I mean, he's got so many yeah. eras, but it's Dylan's art all the way through. And that's something I always admired about you because I only got hip to you in 2013. You had well over a decade under your belt. So when I would backtrack, you know, there was like this one Seattle radio station mix that was super dark. And then the next moment it was Best Friend. Um, I really, when I listen, I feel like you purged a lot in the second album, Elucidation of Sorrow, mm -hmm. aptly titled. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe the Mendoza line or media, Happy Medium at a Rose, which mm -hmm. is probably my personal fave of, mm -hmm. of your work. Um, I know you got to go on stage in a minute, so... Uh, maybe we we'll just take a time out, and okay. if you're, you know, down or feeling it, we'll pick it up okay. after. Okay, sounds great. All right. Thanks.
California. I'm here with Random Rab. We just uh, took a break from our chat where he took the stage here to sold out Cornerstone in Berkeley and uh, fantastic performance, lots of guitar. Um, we were just talking off the air, but I kind of just want to revisit this again now. Um, a big fan of yours, a fellow by the name of Buck. I watched him get engaged uh, at your sunrise set one year at LIB, I want to say 2014 really really magical in the ditch as i recall yep and um a few years later you posted a photograph of you holding this uh, one-of-a-kind guitar that he had made you the same guitar that was heavily featured in your set could you tell us a little bit about the guitar and also uh you know what it means or feels like to play an instrument made for you specifically like that with yeah such love? so when buck asked me to uh he said he wanted to propose to his girlfriend and we got to talking and i was like well let's not just do a proposal he told me to play guitar i'm like why don't you get up there and play guitar with me we'll surprise her and then do the proposal and then that's what he did he got up and played and you know it was a super magical moment a lot of people were crying it was beautiful and like yeah she said yes of course and then and then he told me that um he was a luthier and he made guitars and he wanted to make me a guitar and this year at the uh or this last year at the eclipse festival in oregon he presented me a guitar that he had made custom for me with um in a collaboration with a bunch of other art artists um if you know pinecone carl did a pinecone carl inlay uh, so there's a little pinecone in it and then patch rubin did ammonite in the neck um leafy green did the pick guard um 
and then the case is totally custom painted and everything is just completely custom made for me with top of the line you know whatever all the it just sounds so good and I I, I think this guitar is magic you know it really is magic it sounds so good I've had a lot of electric guitars I've probably owned like seven or eight really nice ones but this one is special because when I plug it in in the studio it's completely silent like there's no buzz it's just like like the only guitar I've ever owned where it's just like completely quiet and that gives me the space and an effectiveness to use it with electronic music and since I've been playing it in my set and on this tour I've been playing it with um, so either every song I'm either playing guitar or singing or both um, and it just helped me connect to my music in a way that I've never been able to before and the instrument sings and helps me and uh, see and hear the music in a new way and it truly is a magical instrument like I just feel um, it's brought me back to my roots, it's brought me back to myself, it, it guides me rather than feels like I need to struggle to play it. It helped, it's so easy, he made it just for me, like with, you know, he asked me all these questions about myself and about my hands and about like what kind of guitars I, I've liked in the past and just, and just crafted this work of art for me. So um, it's the finest gift I've ever received and uh, I just want to give all the praise to Buck for understanding me and my music and giving me something that I can use and pass on. I mean, it's it's priceless, you know, like you can't, this is not something, it's got my logo engraved, you know, and um, so yeah, I've, it's it's furthered my exploration of music 110%, you know, I'm just so grateful for this thing. And yeah, and it, it just fits in so well with the music somehow, it just works. <laughs> yeah, I noticed um, it definitely informs the, your newer music a lot, you look, like a guitarist, if you will. In the past, you know, you'd pick up the guitar, you'd play a lick, you might sample a lick, loop it up or whatever, but now you're up there really like playing riffs or playing, you know, textures and chords, and it just, it feels, uh, I guess I would say, more natural to you. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's obviously the guitar, but also I think the music that you make, some of the new stuff you're playing tonight, it's more guitar-centric. Yeah. Um, it's also, that, yeah. Yeah, it's also like, well, I was, we were talking about this earlier, it's like, on my last tour, I had all my analog synths, you know, my little modules, and those are great and really cool, but nobody really knows what I'm doing, and there's no connection to the audience, and it's not that people don't care, it's that people just don't understand, and they, I mean, there's no reason they could, because it's all hidden on these little knobs, and so, the, but the guitar is just one of the reasons this instrument has been just one of the best live instruments of all time is because it's exposed you you can see their hand you can see it like emanates this energy and it's very um, something that people can relate to and um, there's a simplicity there and so I think it helps me kind of bring my music to a place of connection with the audience so it's not just all mystery you know there's a little bit of like oh yeah I've, I've played a guitar or I know somebody who plays guitar and like I'm, it, this makes sense to me and so there's kind of this point of connection there that happens and it's a relationship um, it's a it's a mutual relationship with the audience, you know, and so it helps me feel connected to them and the audience connected to me, and it just it, it bridges the gap of That's electronic awesome. music. Yeah, I'm stoked that he made you that guitar. Mm, me too. Really, really <laughs> revolutionized the whole thing. Like you said, less synths, more guitar, and maybe more of like a focus mm -hmm. um, on the performance. You know, um, so just to kind of transition a little bit, uh, one thing I've always wanted to talk to you about is uh, you've been open to the fact that you've attended Burning Man 20 consecutive years. That's where I was lucky enough to meet you one morning. Um, you know, a few minutes after you'd finished performing at the sunrise, I want to say it was um, uh, Fractal. 
mm-hmm. and uh, I was near there that where you performed there, and I saw you yeah. near there, and we had this really amazing interaction um, where I had just seen you perform for the first time, and it was such a revolutionary experience for me. I'd been seeing music my whole life. It took me to 35 to get to my first Burning Man. At that point in time, you'd been maybe 15 or 16. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it, we, there was no classism or elitism or like, oh, this is your, your you know, burner virgin, this or that. You just, you know, opened the door to a conversation, and I told you what I did, and you... Um, you gave me your contact and I wrote a little something about Burning Man and you responded to that and you invited me to Symbiosis and that cosign really brought me into this new chapter of my career out here on the West Coast in the festival world and so first let me thank you for that because it was oh, really my pleasure. Yeah, man. amazing That's thing awesome. to do and um, it, like I said it propelled me into a sort of new uh, arena if mm-hmm. you will and you know it's safe to say that you're, you know, an iconic force in that world, in Burning Man and the festival world. So I, I want to first talk a little bit about Burning Man. What is it? Because um, people talk ad nauseum about Burning Man, so we don't have to talk about what it is. But mm-hmm. what is it about Burning Man uh, that uh, brings you back year in and year out uh, without fail? Well, yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting thing because like I think that yeah, like the kind of the the Burning Man meme of what Burning Man is has been sort of that horse has been beaten, you know, and everybody like there's it it, be, it it can get kind of blown out, but I think that the truth is is that it's the best festival on the planet. It really is because um, they've created an environment where everybody just gives. You know, everybody just sacrifices and pays their own way. And, like, I've never made a dime off Burning Man. I've only spent all my, you know, I spend more money at Burning Man than any other festival, and I play, like, eight to ten sets, you know. Um, but really, the reason I'm there are the people and the and the way that people are open and raw and ready to get their mind blown and want that so bad. Like, people are looking for an emotional release. Like, they're just so ready. And that is the reason. Like, I mean, the art is amazing, of course, and all these other things. But what keeps me coming back are the people. And it's, an, it's the only environment where I can play my music and truly break through to a place of just, like, total, like... I mean, I can't even, it's indescribable bliss, you know, and there's been so many moments out there during my sets where I've literally thought to myself, I don't want this moment to ever end. And that is so rare, you know, there's been so many bars and clubs or whatever. I'm like, yeah, this is great. But like, you know, I can't wait to break down and get back to my hotel room, take a shower or whatever. When I'm out there and I'm playing my set, I've just had this feeling so many times where I'm like, wow, I don't ever want this moment to end. And the, it's the rawness, the connection, the, the something about it that it could never be put into words. And um, it for me, with my music in particular, or at least my relationship with my own music in particular, it has changed everything for me. And I honor it and respect it and will always keep coming back as long as I can. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's all things to all people. So, you know, deliver something different each year yep. to each person. And you can have a hard burn and you can mm-hmm. have a bliss burn yep. and you can have both. Uh, they say it gives you what you need, right? Yeah. But um, I just found that uh, the experience with you and particularly like I've seen you play at two or three in the morning and then I've seen you play at sunrise um, and obviously they're decidedly different journeys and you've been one of the sort of OG purveyors of the morning set and 
before we get into it, did that begin for you at Burning Man? Was your sunrise set starting at Burning Man? More or less, yeah. Like my first proper sunrise set was probably at Burning Man, and I had all this music that I had because I've been playing breaks and more kind of darker stuff, but I had all this kind of light music that I had never played before, and then I just decided to play it one year at the Burn, and everybody was super into it, and it kind of changed my perspective of uh, my own ego about what I was trying to prove, because I was trying to prove at that time that I was, like, tough. And then once I kind of opened up more of a, kind of, I guess, the best word would be the feminine side or the more kind of delicate side, and that was accepted, it almost felt... Well, going back to, like, I used to be in a heavy metal band. And part of the reason I was in a metal band was because I wanted to fucking just feel the fucking, like, oh, just, just, aggression. The, just yeah, the aggression. And also just, like, the um, solidness of being alive. Just, like, so fucking confident and solid, right? And then I realized with this delicate music that is actually more edgy. It is more heavy metal. This pretty music is actually heavier metal than the metal I was playing because it's more vulnerable and I learned that out there is that like the vulnerability is actually more edgy and more hardcore and more punk rock than anything I'd ever done before and so that kind of it changed my perspective of what I was trying to to do and I realized I didn't have anything to prove anymore it was all about just pure expression and like and being allowed and giving permission to do that was the greatest gift that the community has ever given to me. Because once I gave, was allowed and or given that permission from the community to do that, I was able to explore a side of my music that I had never been able to explore before. So, um, and that way, I'm indebt indebted to everyone who has helped me find that path. You know, it's not really about what I get out of it, but what about what everyone has given to me. Right on. Yeah, I noticed that there's a liberation to those performances. There's like a certain just freedom. Uh, obviously, you're in the open air outside. It's morning, the sun's coming up. But there's just a... Uh, I experienced it, obviously, at that first burn, but really where I saw what the power of that sort of seance was that Envision, mm. which you've performed at all the Envisions. I think they're up to seven or yep. eight now. Everyone, yep. And, um, your morning sets at Envision have become obviously tradition, but also, you know, almost something of a, a definitely spiritual nature, but, you know, in a lot of ways, holy to people, you know, in, in terms of no matter what's going on with their festival or what kind of festival they're having or whether they have to work or whether this or that, they make the time, they mm. show up, and it's such a uh, an outpouring of love and connection mm -hmm. um, that it really set the standard for me, it's hard to kind of experience other sunrise sets, having lived three of those with you mm. in Costa Rica. Um, maybe talk a little bit about your connection to that community. Envision the festival and, and Ubita and Dominical and so forth, and obviously Brennan, mm. Sophia, and of course. Well, world. Well, also, yeah, I mean, the well, down there, it's almost like the kind of, it's in a way, it's the polar opposite because it's like jungle rather than desert, but then there's something the force of nature down there with this when the sun comes up i mean there's so is so potent down there and and the the trees the monkeys the ocean i mean the lushness the thickness of life down there is i mean indescribable and to experience it at sunrise is like the perfect moment because it's, it's pretty hot you know and like that's the only time in costa rica that i've ever been where it's not too hot 
<laughs> you know, it's like I'm a. For me, it's like it's pretty hot down there but that is like the perfect perfect moment where you can really drop in and just kind of look around and appreciate without like being overwhelmed by it i guess because it's a very overwhelming jungle and i mean for people like me stifling yeah it can kind of like bog you down but in a beautiful way um and there's really nothing like playing sunrise down in division i mean that's that's the pinnacle that's what it's meant to be and I, i i i could have never known that having not done it you know what i mean like it's just once you do it it's just like oh yeah now whoa this is like something i never expected and the people the the look on people's faces in those moments and like one of my favorite things about it is that all night everybody's like kind of like doing their own thing they're in their little pod of like three or four people partying over here partying over here and then at sunrise comes all the groups of friends find each other like hey what's up what's up what's up and i and i get to watch Everybody, all these homies get together, and I see so many hugs and high fives and shit. And like, it, that is really what it's all about for me is just being a witness to how fucking awesome the uh, community is with itself, you know, and how much love there is in the community because there's so much love. And right now in the world, with all the you know the political climate and like if you read the news you would think this world is fucking just like a complete disaster and in some ways it is but when i look out onto like a dance for like envision or something like that it um it gives me hope you know because there is the the amount of love is just like absurd and it almost there's more love there and it just overtakes all the pain and suffering of the planet and it spreads out and ripples out and it's truly valuable. It's something that is special and it needs to happen and is important and is not a waste of time. It's not just a party. It is so necessary for people to experience love and connection and friendship and harmony like that because then when they go home, they can share that with their friends and that it's like an exponential, yes, and it is a contagion of love and it's so important. Yeah, and I feel like you've bottled that up in song with Give Me That Hope. I mean, you played it at the end of the set tonight, and I remember, you know, we worked together on the Formless Edge rollout when you released that LP, and um, that song has kind of been at the forefront of your performances for the past couple of years, Mm -hmm. and just seeing the way people respond to it. I remember, like, at LIB, and, uh, or excuse me, at Eclipse, Uh and uh, then even in a club, small club setting like tonight, um... It's a powerful tome, you know, it's very simple, you know, the, the sentiment, mm-hmm. but um, as you just spoke, it's just necessary, and, and people are really getting hope out of the music, just like we were talking earlier tonight about mourning and healing, mm-hmm. um, there's also a positivity mm-hmm. that you can sort of derive out of that song, and really like your latter era of your career uh, is really embracing hope and embracing mm-hmm. love and uh, stepping into the light. You know, and I think that's pretty awesome, man. Thank you. Um, you've, we talked a little bit about Burning Man and Envision, and, and early tonight we were just bouncing the ideas of, you know, your, your music is taking you all over the world. Um, uh, boom in Portugal every other year happens, and you've been there at least mm-hmm. once, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you were invited to Rainbow Serpent in Australia later yep. this year? Uh, in January, yeah. In yep. January? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, do you notice extreme... Uh, difference in festival cultures overseas as to say what we're talking about with a eclipse or symbiosis or lib typical west coast festival world yeah well there i mean yeah there is i mean one of the things i noticed like like a boom for instance i mean every time you walk around the corner it's a different language right 
and there's just like it's like it's like an international sort of scene and but yet everyone connects with the music because that you know obviously that the the common thing right it's a universal language but and it's also based around a lot around psytrance it's kind of the right. heartbeat of the festival um and but there's something really potent about psytrance and the way that it brings people together especially in the international community and i feel like um as a musician, usually when Psytrance is the heartbeat and you are sort of like, not the sideshow or anything, but you kind of like are riffing off of that heartbeat, you know, it, it, it is an interesting, it feels like, cause I feel like Psytrance is more kind of like, um, the lizard brain. I mean, no, no offense to Psytrance. I love Psytrance, but it's kind of like the root of your, 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 medulla oblongata psytrance like, <laughs> is like kind of like the most sort of like hardcore internal music that could possibly exist right. and then at, and to expand upon that it gives you this opportunity to speak to the audience in a different way whereas in the west coast community i feel like it's a lot more about kind of uh, self-expression and not about uh hive mind uh, I'm having a hard time describing it because I've just I've never been quite able to understand why there's a difference there and why American audiences, North American audiences, are particularly drawn to like bass music, quote unquote, right. and international communities are more drawn to um, house and uh, psytrance. Right, four on um, the floor. Yeah, four on the floor. I, Which and I, works its way into your music a little bit. Oh yeah, it does. And I love, and I've made Psytrance, you know, and um, and I've made House as well. Yeah. And I, I think I'm kind of over that phase right now, and I'm not doing it so much. But, um, yeah, I went through a phase where I had to do it after Boom, you know. Yeah, like, I was like, um, but, yeah, the but but then again, there's something about the Internet, you know, it's, it, it's, it's exactly the same. It's just, like, people wanting to feel good, and that's really what I'm there to help facilitate is the feeling feeling good and that's the, every human wants that you know and if you can help people do that in whatever way you can um then you're doing your job and you're a part of it and so um there's something really special about that to be able to offer something through music that uh crosses cultural boundaries and um and that's what makes art and music so incredible you know yeah and you you exist in that sort of paradigm genre wise if you will because you might be like a child of west coast based culture but you never made music that could anywhere be close to define maybe your early days you played some some sort of bassy mm -hmm. sets but there's always been sort of organic themes and instrumentation and one thing i did want to ask about is you always had these really cool field recordings of, mm -hmm. of nature and mm -hmm. sounds and and then the musicality in that and that's like you're such a polar opposite of, of, you know, queuing up the big unstrop, you know, the womp and all that. Yet, you know, West Coast bass culture claims you as one of their own. Mm. So I was looking when I was doing a little crash course in, in your career before mm -hmm. I came over here. Um, you've collaborated with so many artists. And, and, and it's funny because electronic music, people like you were talking about pressing play or just turning knobs or whatever. But you're somebody who's made music like a musician with other cats in the quote-unquote electronic music world but they're musicians too sidecar tommy mm -hmm. david you know rigson mm -hmm. uh, Elia. Mm -hmm. i mean the list goes on do you sort of see things in terms of um, a community of musicians that collaborate 
or are you a lone ranger like the one guy that collaborates with everyone or do you think it's a, a commonplace I would say in the sort of west coast psychedelic electronic music world I feel like you're an uh, anomaly like you make music with so many different artists and you can't be qualified as any style that you they had a stage for bass and a stage for this and a stage for that where they put you, you know? <laughs> but at the same time you know you're alive and well in this community you continue to get booked you continue to work and uh, move records you know so well I feel like I I think that I, I if I could thank myself for one thing it would be name myself random rab because the rant because uh, now by having random as my moniker I can do whatever the fuck I want now <laughs> you know sure. uh, and um, I can constantly change and and do it you know just kind of flow with whatever you know is my fancy at that moment I do feel though that the community what's awesome about this community in particular is that it's very non-competitive it, uh, I mean everybody's you know wants to be successful and everybody wants to you know headline whatever show but beyond kind of the most basic sort of needs of like you know wanting to have your own career be successful I would say this is an extremely non-competitive and harmonious scene and everybody is so fucking cool the musicians almost you know 95% of the musicians and electronic artists and singers and everybody that I run into in this community are fucking great and I would work with any of them um and everybody seems to like to work with you because well, you have a list of collaborators a mile long. Yeah, well, and it's great because, like, well, my rule, my only rule is that if, if people want to collaborate, they have to come to my studio and hang out, or I go to their studio and hang out. Like, I don't do remote collaborations. Email uh, file. No, because, like, the whole point is, it's like, hanging out. Like, I want to, ha- I actually really mostly want to hang out, you know? And then if we make music and it's awesome, then that's kind of, like, the bonus. Right. Um, so it's an excuse to sort of reach out to these, because I, I, I'm a fan of everybody that I work with. I'm, like, a f- fucking fanboy. Like, like you know, I was playing with Dirtwire tonight. Like, I love Dirtwire's music. And, like, I love you know, like David Story, you know, and like, and when he comes to my studio, we've worked together on a few things. We're about to release some stuff. Um, it's like, it's an opportunity. I feel just super blessed that he, you know, someone like that or Tommy or Ilya or any of these guys would even want to just hang out, you know, and right. then, and then we make music and it's great. And so I always feel like the, the whole point of collaborating with people is not about making a hit. It's not about making the dopest track that everyone's going to like on Facebook. It's about, uh, learning and about educating and about like cross-pollinating and coming up with a way to express your connection as friends through the sound and about respecting uh, their input and I think the most important rule of collaborating for me is it's not about forcing your opinion on someone it's about where do we both agree on what sounds awesome and if if one person says I don't really like it then you just move on that's it there's no discussion you know, and if, if you both say, this is great, then that's it, that you move on to the next thing. And so it's always, like, that's the key, I think, to an awesome collaboration is to never be like, no, 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 I really feel strongly opinionated that this sound needs to be in this song, and if you right. don't like it, like, we can't work together. Like, and some people are like that, and it's right. just like, that's not the way to do it. You have to be like, no, like, wherever we say is awesome, that's what we keep and whatever we don't one person doesn't like that's it there's no discussion you know and so that's how you and, and I think that's really about re- respect and friendship you need so, that non-competitive vibe so you can yes. get there yeah it's like because it, that's not the point you know right. like if you want to compete like compete with yourself you know like right. 
don't don't but not with anybody you're collaborating with you know it's all about just like friendship and then if you're having a good time having an adventure making a track it's going to be a fucking great track if you're enjoying the process of making this music it's gonna be awesome because you're gonna have a great memory and everyone's gonna feel it right on yeah that's an awesome sentiment man hopefully those words ripple out to you know some of the less you know some of the communities that are a little more competitive or a little you know less welcoming to you know whether it be up-and-comers or established artists because yeah you're right in contemporary music culture it's really competitive and mm -hmm. sort of survival of the mm -hmm. fittest and and this sort of exists outside of that spectrum. And mm -hmm. It's pretty awesome. I've been mm -hmm. watching it for many years now, and I'm, you know, just grateful to have a front row seat and be able to have conversations mm -hmm. like this with people like you and document it because uh, you guys are making great art, and uh, I feel like we're a part of a beautiful global community. And you know, I just want to do my part by sitting down and getting great, the man. words on tape. So glad you're doing this. <laughs> hey, man, I'm, I'm honored and yeah. privileged. To, just one uh, one final thing, because you've been gracious with your time. Um, you mentioned, and there's an opportunity for you to plug your shit, but you mentioned you have an unreleased record in the can. Mm -hmm. you played a couple songs from yep. tonight. Um, just tell us if you got a title for it, when we can expect it, anything you want to tell us um, about. I, to yeah, I don't have a title that I'm wanting to share right now. Okay. Um, I'm doing, well, the, the, the best way to describe it is um, I'm doing, well, I'm doing this show in Denver, um, doing two nights in a row at Ophelia's, Fate and Free Will. Um, and the, fir it's, the first night is Fate. It's a cool room. Yeah, it's fucking great. I've seen some funky favorite, One of my favorite venues. Yeah. Um, and the first night is Fate, the second night is Free Will, and the first night um, is dark, and the next night is light music. And I'm really, so Fate and Free Will are sort of the concepts that I'm working on with this sort of trying to understand how these two things exist simultaneously in a way that we can't comprehend, but um, we can understand through art and we can understand through music. And so the conceptually uh, the two things exist on a gyroscope in a way that we are bound to our fate and yet we have complete free will. And so anyway, the new album that I'm working on is sort of exploring that concept philosophically and lyrically. Um, I'm really going for a more minimal approach and lyrical based um, and heavily featuring, you know, more, um, guitar and instruments and kind of like getting a, my last album was a little bit more uh, analog synth stuff and yeah. I'm still using all that but I'm trying to kind of uh, a little more organic I guess would be the word um, so yeah I'm hoping to wrap it up by the end of the year and um, early 2019 come out with it so um, cool. yeah this is this is I'm um, something I'm really excited to to share with everyone yeah well keep us posted because you know I want to do some features on it That'd be like great. I always like to do um, I've always been curious about more. Uh -huh. um, is that still a thing? Yeah, I just played a more set. Yeah, yeah, like uh, two weeks ago in Seattle. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I think actually my friend Marika might have been at that show. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah I, I stayed with, uh, well, with beautiful. Yeah, the other house. Yep. Right on. Well, um, shout out to Marika. Yeah, and Michael, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We love you guys. Yeah, I, the only problem with more sets is that I, I keep throwing my neck out because I headbang yeah. like the whole time, and um, so yeah, I'm doing it, but I realize I had, I need like you know massage therapy on hand right after a more set because there's too much head yeah. pain, you know <laughs> well yeah man this was a great talk and i'm looking cool. forward to the record and uh, here i'll send my colorado friends to the fate and free will gigs 
And uh, yeah, man, thanks for tonight. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. We'll put it out in a couple weeks. I'll be sure to uh, let you know. Anyway, wrapping it up from uh, Random Rab's Cozy Tour Sprinter Van. Uh, Very white whale. whale. (laughs) Unique place to do an interview. And and he put an Up for Life sticker right on the head of the door. So super stoked on that. And uh, I'm going to sign off now. This is B. Getz with the Up for Life podcast. And we'll see you next time. And there you have it, the whimsical wizard himself, Random Rab, live and direct from his Sprinter van outside his sold-out show with Dirtwire at the Cornerstone in Berkeley, California, just a couple of weeks ago. So we want to thank our good friend Random Rab for the time and the vine uh, really grateful for all uh, that he was open to sharing now I'm going to uh, kind of flesh out a little bit of my own personal history and um, experiences with Rab how I met him and the role he's played in my life professionally personally spiritually as a friend um, and as a spirit you know, I have a really special history with him um, with one that feels incredibly cosmic and uh, just almost like manifesting a destiny so um, it took me till I was 35 years old uh, to make it to Burning Man for the first time in 2013 I always like to joke that, you know, the universe waited till I was ready um, to deliver me such a powerful life experience. And uh, as a sidebar, I know, as Rab also mentions in our interview, Burning Man is kind of like a meme, and there's a lot of punchlines associated with it. And, you know, I'd say a third of them are actually on the the money. Um, There's a lot to say about Burning Man in terms of why it's, you know, why it's worthy of, um, you know, being judged for its various uh, ostentatious and, uh, you know, waste. And I mean, there's just a lot you could say about Burning Man, but I'll stand by the fact that it is really the most powerful life experience that I've been blessed to have. You know, and I would say that kind of thing about Big Cypress for a while, and then I would say that about Jazz Fest, especially my first couple. But by the time I was 35, you know, I'd lived through, uh, I'd had uh, problems with addiction, with pharmaceutical opiates, and uh, had gone through, uh, you know, difficult times in, in young adulthood. And um, life had gotten away from me considerably. And I was kind of at my wit's end, if you will, and really in a dark place and dark frame of mind and uh, for whatever reason that that's when I ended up going to Burning Man you know my dad was sick and uh, would die not long after this a couple you know a year and a half after uh, this is summer 2013 so um, I had moved home from Florida to live with my parents in my mid-30s to help care for my dad but also because my life was falling apart and I had a problem with drugs, and I had a problem with myself. 
And uh, anyway, my dear friend Maria and her then partner had, you know, coaxed me into coming out to Burning Man where they had been a few times and assured me that this was the medicine that I needed. Uh, and so uh, I got on a plane with all my stuff. And when I say all my stuff, I don't mean just the myriad of things you need for the burn, but also all my stuff for a few months because I was going to stay out west and go back to California and work on the ganja farms and kind of turn the page and see, you know, it's like sort of last gasp of like, hey, I hope I can figure this life thing out because uh, I've been making a lot of poor choices and really not loving myself. So that was the me that showed up on the playa. And there's so many stories I could tell about how I got there and my first day and a half there. and But that's not for this podcast. Um, basically, uh, you know, I experienced a lot of music for the first time. Me, somebody who lived for and was fueled by and whose life um, revolved around music and the cultures that surround music. So to arrive at Burning Man and plug into, you know, primarily electronic music, something that I was you know, I had blinders on for for so many years and so rigid in my aversion to things that I couldn't call my own or didn't understand. And uh, electronic music was one of them. And uh, not only did I fall in love with deep house music at my first burn, but I fell in love with bass music and fell in love with like spiritualized bass music. Um, and, And I had never really experienced like dancing all night till the sun came up in a desert, in these like opulent quasi nightclubs and what they call art cars, where these giant vehicles drive you around as like a mobile nightclub all through the night until the morning and the sun comes up and you got to really go there to 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 believe it. But you know, somebody like myself, this was like a new lease on life. And I had very powerful dance sessions and connections with people on the dance floor. And um, not the least of which was uh, two sets that I saw from Random Rap. And um, one of them was at like three in the morning, as I recall. And the other one was at sunrise. And they were both like, couldn't be more uh, divergent in the journeys, the different sets that he performed, as well as the music that he played, and, um, you know, the night stuff was kind of, like, ominous and foreboding, and as he would describe, maybe, like, fueled by sorrow, and, but also, like, really, really just lush, beautiful, sexy uh, dance music. But then the, the sunrise sets, he would almost like shift from those minor, ominous, foreboding, ethereal tones and keep the ethereal and then kind of shift into these grandiose, shining, shimmering, beautiful, major themed, uplifting, uh, just a total um, resolution to what we had kind of... Um, experienced earlier in the evening and uh, you know I just kind of broke away from the crew and was wandering around with my bike in the bright morning sun I think it was the morning uh, of the burn so Saturday morning as I recall and 
standing next to or just outside of the fractal planet sound camp which was the site of so much glory over those uh seven days in 2013 um you know i had to do a double take am i seeing things is that random rab himself struggling to light uh, at the time we both smoked cigarettes um pleased to say neither of us do any longer but um he was struggling to get a smoke lit, an yeah, American spirit, as I recall, which is what my preferred smoke was, and uh, just sort of biked over him and helped lit his cig and was like, kid in a candy, here's somebody like me. I'd been around musicians for years doing the jam bass and live for life music stuff, and um, or at the time, no, not live for life music, jam bass, and, uh, you know, didn't really get starstruck or whatever, but... I kind of was. I kind of was more just like bewildered by the moment. And uh, just approached him with a childlike glee and wide eyes and just all the enthusiasm you can imagine for a burn, Burning Man morning. Or basically like your, what they say is your birthday, uh, is burn day. And so it was like just the sheer, eb, you know, ebullient beauty emanating from humans who are interacting on the morning of the man burn. Um, and that's when I happened upon Rab. It's just like, uh, you know, what, how fortuitous. And um, yeah, so I just said, hey man, it's my first burn. I'm a writer. Um, I love music. I just experienced your 3 a.m. set and then your sunrise set. And like, you know, basically like, golly gee, that was some shit. And, uh, and he just was so humble and gracious and like just wanted to chat and didn't really want to talk about his music or sets. He just wanted to talk. And then he took me into this little like sort of uh, insulation uh, with art from Alex and Allison Gray, who were kind of like new on my radar at the time. And they had something uh, adjacent to the fractal planet. Uh, man, it was just like, wow, um, just the significance of that moment and that interaction. And I had told him that I was a writer and that I was going to, I didn't come to Burning Man to write about the music, but you better believe I'm going to do it because I'm having these really powerful uh, experiences with the music and the dancing and the people. And like, I want to talk about it. He was like, I'd love to read what you write about this and anything else. And here's my email. He just kind of spouted it off and I was like, committed it to memory. Um, wasn't that hard and uh, um, you know that was that and I kind of went back to our camp be here now and said to my friends uh, eclectic mix of KG veteran burners and uh, fresh faced virgins like myself and I was like yo fam uh, just met and kicked it with and connected with random rap you know and Basically, the collective response was like, big fucking whoop, dude, this Burning Man. It's like, we're all the same around here, which is debatable. There's a bit of classism there. But as far as like what they're talking about, they're right. Like, it doesn't matter who you bump into. It's, we're all the same, you know, only the names are changed. And, uh, well, long story short, that was how we met. And then uh, I wrote something for Jambase about the music of Burning Man. 
which in retrospect was like so green that it's almost laughable when I revisit it. But it's also written with a lot of passion, enthusiasm, and like just an earnest zest for the joy of living and how that is communicated through the live music experience. Um, and uh, obviously featured Rab. And uh, suffice to say, he appreciated it. He told me that uh, he'd be playing Symbiosis Gathering in about three weeks, which was in Northern California, not far from where I was landing, uh, in the gold country, Nevada City area, so I could just cruise down. And he'd uh, co-sign my media application if I wanted to, like, cover the festival. He'd say, you know, I could drop his name, which, like, is gold. So I did exactly that, and, uh, you know... I went to Symbiosis, like really the only artist I was intimately familiar with that was playing, besides Rab, which was, again, a brand new thing, was uh, Sector 9 was playing. It was actually the last time I saw them play with David Murphy on the bass. And uh, they played two sets. And it was actually really good tribe sets at the time. Uh, I enjoyed it after having kind of been off the Sound Tribe reservation for quite some time. But anyway, I digress. Um, I wanted to say, and I told Rab this in the interview, um, that that cosine and that imitation to symbiosis uh, with where I was at in my life and the uncertainty and sort of self-loathing and I felt like I'd done it all in the sort of jam and jazz funk communities as far as what I could live and what I could uh, write about and then he just like handed me the key to the universe and was like check this shit out and I went to this festival which was like all kinds of music and art and sort of like post-prankster psychedelic culture uh, like a, mixed with burn culture mixed with global edm uh, culture um, just like kind of the antithesis to the electric daisy carnival uh, or ultra vibe it was like all the things that i loathed or was uh, had an aversion to regarding electronic music had been surgically removed and replaced with like sort of like deadhead, dead culture vibes, uh, just with different music, but kaleidoscopic colors and pranksterism and art and sort of improv theater, um, all of it on steroids. And the rest is history. I mean, people like to say that I changed or this or that. No, I just went uh, out west and was uh, indoctrinated into a different culture and now as many of you know who have read anything that I've written from out here I'm really uh, at trying to uh, author the you know the two universes kind of coalescing and really that to me is what's going down at a place like Swanee Halloween um, but again I digress and it all started from the symbiosis and I only went there because Rab said that it would be a good idea and uh, it was an understatement of the century. You can read my reflection on jam bass uh, regarding um, Symbiosis 2013. Now, I've given a great deal of thought whether or not I should or even can tell this story. Um, I've told it a couple of times uh, to friends and people close to me. Um, but not really very many times and one of my dear friends Scott T told me you know I needed to tell this story somehow and maybe one day I'll write it out but uh, yeah uh, as some people know who know me in real life um, 
I was incarcerated for a year uh, out here in California. And during that year, uh, in late April, when I had been in custody for roughly six months, my father passed away. Uh, and uh, I'm an only child. So my mother uh, was left to uh, carry this solo. My dad was uh, 81 at the time when he passed away. My mom was in her 70s. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really want to talk a whole lot about being incarcerated and losing my dad while I was in there. I will, maybe even on this podcast one day. But just it's part of the context of what I'm discussing here. So I needed to explain that. And um, when we were in custody in our... We were in these pods, which are basically like really barren dorms with bunk beds. And um, I I had this uh, transistor radio with... Uh, earbuds that I could get AM and FM stations on. Very few uh, would come in, but I could get a few. There's like a couple hip-hop stations from Sacramento and some country and some classic rock. And then, of course, KVMR, which is like a community radio or like college-style radio, but community radio station, listener-supported in Nevada City, California, where I lived uh, for a year and change before I uh, was... I went into custody, and then where I lived for a couple of years when I was released uh, before moving here to the Bay Area in Oakland uh, last April. But anyway, um, so I would listen to this uh, radio station uh, religiously, KVMR, because not only did they play uh, the Grateful Dead show Two Hours of Dead every Saturday night from 8 to 10, but they had two weekly radio shows, including uh, my man Redlocks on Friday nights, and they had um, a number of shows that I enjoyed, and uh, one show played uh, music that sort of leaned towards what you might hear at Burning Man. A couple shows did, but one in particular, uh, Bohemian Groove, hosted by a lovely woman named Faye, and I'm not sure if it was on her show or on a different Thursday night hip-hop show. Um, every other Thursday, or every, her, excuse me, Faye's show was every other Friday. There was also uh, every other Thursday hip-hop show, and I had heard Break Science on there once, and I lost my shit, uh, uh, just like hearing Deitch, and when I was locked up, I can't even, that's a, it's another <laughs> discussion for a podcast, but, um, that's why I got, like, so keened in on KVMR, is because I was like, oh my god, they play all this music that I, so this is going to get me through this. For a period of time, I didn't know how long I was going to be in there. Um, but anyway, I got into this sort of uh, rigid schedule of listening to shows and like not wasting batteries because you could only get two batteries per week. Um, and Faye's show was like must hear. The Bohemian Groove every other Friday. And uh, so she was... Uh, keen on playing Random Rab's music almost every time she'd play a song or two. And uh, so I took 
I used like I would get money on my phone or money on the phone a payphone that I could then call my mom or call my friends and luckily my my people always kept a few bucks on the phone and those that did that know who they are and thank you and um, I would spend some of that money calling KVMR and requesting music and now when you make a phone call from jail um, the there's like an automated voice that lets the person receiving the call know that they're getting a call from the Placer County Jail um, from and let's say my name and then uh, let them know they were not being charged for this and did they want to proceed so a lot of the times in the beginning the radio station would just hang up but as soon as uh, eventually curiosity kills a cat they'd accept um, they'd accept my call and I'd like, hey this is me I'm locked down listening to you love it thank you I'd like to hear XYZ so and you know you call a few times and you know they remember you they get the guy from jail so such was the case with the lovely Faye who uh, had the bohemian groove and she would periodically when I call in for a song ask me how I was and you know just kind of bullshit with me for two minutes till the song was up and she had to play the next song it's not like I ever knew her or anything about her. She knew very little about me other than what I shared. But um, I got the news of my dad's passing, on, I believe it was on a Tuesday, as I recall, early in the week. And by the time Thursday rolled around, you know, I'd been carrying it for a couple of days. Um, you know, some of the worst time of my life. Maybe the absolute worst, you know. Uh, and, uh, I picked up the phone and I called for Faye in Bohemian Groove and she answered and I think she asked if how I was or was I okay or maybe even sensed something was up and I just told her that uh, I got word that my father had passed back in Philadelphia and that um, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to get leave to go back to uh, Philadelphia to, you know, participate in the funeral. I may have known already by then that I couldn't. Um, they had actually postponed the Jewish religion. You're supposed to be buried within 24 hours, but they actually waited till the third day because we were petitioning the court to allow me to tra travel back and be a part of the be a part of the funeral and shiva. And the uh, judge denied that and. Uh, so I was unable to participate in that. And I may have known that already or was about to find out. And uh, I, I didn't say all that. I just said that I w my dad had died and that I was locked up. And that I, um, I'd really love to hear some random rap music because his music has some... I didn't, you know, I asked for random rap. The reason being uh, is that his music possesses some very, like, uh, healing and soothing and as I've said several times, heart-filling elements. And if there was ever a time where I was seeking that sort of meditative numbness uh, that music, and particularly his music, can provide, it was at that moment. And Faye, to her 
credit job bless her so her heart uh, she uh, understood that and she played a morning mix of raps um, a portion of it a long chunk of it I like to think it was like 40-ish minutes maybe but it was just an extended extended uh, run of the morning mix which I was familiar with because I had listened to it um, uh, quite a bit uh, before I was in custody and um, anyway you know for that period of time uh, 40-ish minutes I was able to lay in my bunk and close my eyes with the earbuds in pull the covers up and just kind of to detach so it's really hard to explain what came over me but you know I'd been hating myself for this predicament that I'd put myself and my family in and particularly my mother and uh, you know when you're locked up all you really have is your thoughts you can read a book or play cards or any number of things to pass the time, watch television, but at the end of the day, it's like you and your thoughts, and, um, you know, I was carrying a lot of guilt for, for a number of reasons, not being able to say goodbye, and not being able to, um, stand next to my mom at the grave, or receive the family, or force her to have to explain why her only son was not with her at the funeral so you know that's what we're, we're I was up against uh with terms of like what I was trying to reckon with and I'm not saying that rap's music made that go away by any means I'm just saying it offered me a brief moment of relief uh if only while the music was playing so fast forward, um, you know, I was released in October of later that year. That was April, six months later. And you go all the way till August of the following of, you know, so August of 2016. And uh, I was lucky and blessed, as I'm prone to say, that I was invited back to Burning Man. And by invited, I mean I was given a ticket as a gift from somebody in the Burning Man community who is familiar with my work and my writing and my passion for uh, the Black Rock City and Burning Man and the culture and also familiar with what I had lived through. And this man uh, sought me out and gifted me a ticket back home. Uh, the gratitude I have for that gesture from Blue um, I really cannot put into words but he knows it, I know it and, and Random Rab knows it because uh, there's a temple of consciousness at Burning Man or it's a, it's a temple um, it's been called many things, just basically the temple but uh and each year it's built as sort of like a
place for people. It's a beautiful structure that's built and burned, like the man. But it's a sort of a, a, an art installation slash building slash sculpture uh, that is in essence like uh, in memoriam to those that we have lost, uh, specifically in the past calendar year since the man burned the previous year, but it could be for anyone that you've lost at any time. And without saying so on the nose, I'm pretty sure that this gift back home was so that I could go to the temple and mourn my father since I was prevented from doing so because of the draconian cannabis laws in the United States. Um, and I was not sure exactly how I was going to do it, only that I was going to go to the temple and honor my dad. So, um, years earlier, I had cut off my dreadlocks of 10 years. These field hockey sticks that were hanging from my head. I loved having dreads. I loved being a dread. Um, but for a variety of reasons, I uh, took them off uh, around 2008. And uh, I had put them in. I surprised my mom as like a gift. Like, hey, I cut off my dreads. And then uh, they went in a Tupperware and I just had them. 27 dreadlocks. Um, I just had them. Uh, in this huge Tupperware. And, uh, people, I'd heard them, like, take their dreads to the temple. But I never really thought about it until I had a reason to go to the temple. And my dad didn't really have a problem with my dreads. Occasionally he'd razz me about it. But for the most part, unlike my mom, he didn't give a fuck. And, um... So, I decided that on Friday at Burning Man, on the Sab the Jewish Sabbath, or Shabbat, before the sun went down and Shabbat began, I would, um, I'd place, I would go to the temple and I would uh, honor my father. Now, people go to the temple and, and like, so that it's initially just this beautiful structure Installation, but over the course of the week, there's notes and pieces of art, and obviously photographs galore, and inscriptions, and um, just all kinds of personal effects for the deceased and the dearly departed. And as the week goes on, some people just go in and look around. They don't have to be mourning someone specifically. They just go look around and uh, just pay respects to all the fallen um, from the extended, you know, community. Um, it's pretty heavy. And I'd been to the temple a few times in years past um, for that exact reason. But now here I was, and I'm just going to the temple of, with my dreadlocks. Um... So that was the morning of, uh, the, that was happening on Friday evening, excuse me. So on that, the night before, as we're prone to do, especially on Thursday night into Friday morning, um, I was out all night dancing, enjoying the burn as 
best as I could, which was to say, like, you know, I was a little bit more sort of reserved or cautious after having lived through that kind of trauma. But, you know, I was loving life and getting busy and doing my thing and burning, and I had this incredible energy uh, propelling me through the week. And it was not even, like, imbibing as much as normal, or I might have in the past. I was, like, quote-unquote high on life and, like, you know, as low as I'd been. Um, the pendulum had swung the fuck back the other way and how and uh, I was up all night and I was like biking around with this lovely lady that I had uh, spent some time with when I was at the burn that year and uh, we were just hitting up these huge art installations and talking about life and biking around and making new friends Um, basically um the way I recall it is that she uh, excused herself to bike over to the bathrooms. And when she excused herself, we just so happened to be near Robot Heart, which is like a sort of she-she, very like, it's like house music, techno music, and like fabulous people of Burning Man kind of vibes, with lots of supermodels and global elite if you will but also just the creme de la creme of house and techno and playa tech and that's actually how i turned the corner um with that music was at robot heart at my first burn you know similarly to how i met rap i found myself at robot heart and uh, you know the rest is history so um, while this young gal uh, took off to find some portos uh I happened to notice that the Robot Heart bus was over yonder. This giant wrought iron heart atop this bus on Function 1 system. Um, and um, I was like, you know, Playa provides. Cruised on over to see what was going down Sunrise at Burning Heart, at Robot Heart that morning. And uh, put my bike down and amble over. And the, the, like the first person that I saw that I recognized at least, was Random Rap. Rap's an eclectic dude, and I really wasn't shocked that he was like, you know, he's been to, at this point, 20 consecutive Burning Mans. At that time, I guess it was 18 or 17 or 18, whatever. And uh, so, you know, he wants to go check out some Robot Heart, go check out some house. I mean, he plays some houseier stuff, so this wasn't weird, but it was just strange. And what are the chances? 65,000 people... I'm going to happen upon Rab at Robot Heart. But indeed I did. It was the first time that um, I encountered him. I'd seen, I'd gone to hear him play in Nevada City, but we didn't rap. And then I just came up to him and was like, hey man, uh, he, he was like, so happy to see you, so glad that's over. Obviously my incarceration was quite public. And uh, there we were, Sunrise at Burning Man, like about... It was like three years almost to the day from that fateful morning when we met after his set outside of Fractal Planet. And uh, I remarked that, reminded him that that's how we met and how I got on his radar. He got on my radar, I should say. And uh, I said, hey, man. I could borrow a quote from the late great Christopher Wallace. Um, I got a story to tell. And I just wanted to make sure it was cool because if you listen to this podcast, especially this episode, you know I could tell some long ass stories. 
And so he's like, yeah, man, all I got is time. It's Burning Man morning. And um, I told him what I just told y'all about being locked up and my dad dying and the radio DJ from Nevada City playing the morning mix for me and the relief and that, that delivered me momentarily. Yeah, and it rocked him, uh, as it would anyone, but yeah, and we just talked for a moment, and I said it was ironic and cosmic that I'm seeing you on this morning, not just because it's the anniversary of our meeting, if you will, but after I go home and go to sleep for a couple hours, it was like 9 a.m. at that point, 8 a.m., I'm going to go up to the temple and pay respects to my dad. Um, I had something planned. And uh, he's like, well, that's awesome. And he recalled a story which he talks about in the pod for a second. An artist friend of his, Android Jones, his father passed away. And that's who he made the morning mix for. And that's also when he went to the temple to pay respects. Um, and, and just, you know, part of the cylindrical nature of this whole thing. And he told me that he was going to be playing the Burners, uh, Burners Without Borders art car uh, right around sundown this evening and that was an art car I was familiar with because uh, Ilana Mehta a dancer and instructor teacher whimsical philosopher, philosopher Mehta or Ilana Mehta Jaroff uh, I met or came to know about her because of her performing and dancing most notably with Rab at several of the sets that we talk about in the interview. Anyway, so she was affiliated with this, or is affiliated with this burn camp, and they have an art car, and the art car Rab would be playing that evening. He said, yeah, you know, if you after the temple, if you feel up to it, man, check it out. I don't know where we'll be, somewhere in deep playa, but, you know. It's like, cool. Thanks, man. And, uh, Heard some music for a few moments at Robot Heart, and uh, he strangely took out this very fresh deli sandwich and offered me a bite, to which I obliged. Um, and then I went home, and I took a nap, and I woke up, and was like, all right, got to go to the temple for Lloyd. So I went up there, and... Uh, Took a deep breath, parked my bike, locked it up, went inside. And um, the very first thing I saw that my eyes fixated on was a quote written, etched atop. And it said, Gone are the days we stopped to decide. Where we should go, we just ride. End quote. That knocked me on my ass. Even just saying it now, I'm welling it up. I'm welling up with tears. I mean, what the couplet I treasure so much from from uh, Robert Hunter and uh, sung by Garcia and. Yeah, like, of all the things to see when I was walking in, that just, like I said, you know, it's like the playa provides. 
And uh, so I get, got myself together and uh, uh, I sat down. There's like no room. It's Friday. So like all the real estate at the temple is pretty much taken up. It burns on Sunday. So by waiting till Friday, I really gave up any semblance of like uh, real estate. I found like a little spot where there was a little room. And I took out the dreadlocks. You know, I'd had the had a little thing to put them in, and a photograph, and so forth. But uh, and I didn't really think about this till I walked into the temple. What I was gonna do. So one by one, I took out a dread. And now, when you have dreads, and when they're on your head, you know each dread. They're like a child, okay? Um, you know, like you, the curvatures and where it's thick and where it's thin and where it might break off and not, and where it might nap up or marry into another dread, and then you got this knob on the side of your head. It's full wook shit, yes, but. So I hadn't had these dreads on my head for seven ish years. Almost as long as I had them on my head, which was almost a decade. It was like nine and a half years. So it had been like eight, maybe eight years, 2008 to 2016. So eight, year, eight plus years off my head. But like I said, when you have them, you intimately know your dreads by running your hands through them, by washing them. So one by one, I started taking the dreads out and running my hands and fingers over them. And it was like, it's hard to, again, hard to explain, but it just sort of like took me to another place back when I had the locks and all the experiences and energy and ideas and memories that were embedded in those locks. And as I rubbed rub them and stroke them and I just began to speak to my dad just address him um, uh, sometimes I it was like for each dread I pulled out I, I had a memory or a thought or a statement you know so I was recalling uh, I could go into it but it's, it's not the point just specific instances from our youth on the way home from baseball practice in the blue van riding around on the tr furniture delivery truck with his guys, you know, and right into, like, apologizing for any number of things through my youth, right on up through why I was not present. And just having to verbally own that to him. Because, uh, you know, he was suffering from dementia in his, you know, final years, uh, year and a half, two years, uh, gotten really, pretty markedly worse. Um, so... You know, when I was incarcerated and I would speak to him on the phone, my mom would just hand him the phone and I would talk to him just like I was bus too busy to come back. And obviously didn't know he was going to pass, so I was like, you know, be back soon. And then once I got uh, my year sentence and I was like almost halfway done, I, was, you know, I could tell him how long it would be. And, you know, he was, he didn't really know what was up. You know, he didn't get the calls, so he didn't get the automated, like, this, your son's calling from jail voice. So my mom would just hand him the phone. He was in a nursing home at the time, 
uh, he, we had moved him into there shortly before I got in trouble. And, uh, yeah, anyway, um, yeah, since he wasn't aware of what happened, and I certainly didn't tell him, um, I told him at the temple. I told him what had happened. I owned my actions and didn't act like it was just the draconian uh, cannabis laws, but you know, the, I broke rules. And as my father, believe it or not, instilled in me for most of my life, you know, really sort of old school values. And there are consequences for your actions, the value of a dollar, and, and pretty much everything that I did that landed me either, uh, you know, strung out and or incarcerated ran uh, diametrically opposed to the values that he tried to inst that he did instill in me that I then chose to discard albeit temporarily um, and it was almost like uh, you could be like I told you so and so I was basically owning that verbally uh, in this same voice I'm speaking to you right now um, just like my eyes are closed right now my eyes are closed in there and I just like holding a dread and talking to Lloyd and uh, you know people I I was crying a lot and uh, but I'm in the temple so lots of people are crying but every so often somebody would sit down next to me I got a few like massages and head rubs offers a sip of water or this or that um, just love just people cruising by and just like making it known that they were there with me for that moment um, and uh, when I got to the end you know I didn't want it to end at that point I'd feared it for so long and I, I went there like I said it was before sundown because of the whole Shabbat symbolism so I thought I'd be in there for 20 minutes but it was a couple of hours it was getting dark um, and uh, so finally I just like, uh, I think I even recycled a couple dreads so I could say a few more things. And, and then I reassembled my little like, uh, you know, this, the dreadlocks and the photo and a couple other keepsake items that I put in there to, you know, be burned in the temple with everybody else's, um, you know, m memories and, and m memorial inside the temple so I had kind of gathered all my things and put it down I remember at one point in time somebody had left me like a burning man survivor like emotional well-being care package uh, just items for emotional breakdown on playa and I thought that was really cute I didn't notice it till I was like they were long gone but um, that's just what it was like it was just people shuffling around and showing me love and I ran into another couple that was in there paying respects to one of their loved ones and we hugged it out for a second, this lovely couple um, from Los Angeles. And, um, you know, I've never really been into my Judaism for many years, you know, and I don't really, I'm not currently, you know. My experience incarcerated definitely has brought me closer to the idea of a higher power. But I don't necessarily subscribe to uh, Jewish law or 
really Jewish tradition or anything, but I, you know, I honor that that is my heritage and that that's where I come from and that's the filial tradition uh, that runs through, you know, my heritage and ancestry. And uh, for reasons I'll never know, only because my dad did it. Um, we wouldn't really say a whole lot of the prayers in synagogue. We would just sort of like hum along or say the few words that we would always start with, Baruchat Adonai. Um, but, you know, we're just kind of like not into it or not well-versed. But my dad could always say the mourner's Kaddish, which you say at the end of every Shabbat service, at the end of every... Um, like a Rosh Hashanah service or a Yom Kippur service, or really any time you're gathered as a congregation. Um, and it's a Hebrew prayer that honors the dead and remembers the dead. Now, I, w <clears throat> I wanted to interject uh, before I proceed this memory that applies here. Um, when I was 12, going on 13, I was uh, really, really fortunate that my parents brought me to Israel to have a bar mitzvah at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. And uh, I also had a bar mitzvah here in the States, but um, it was like my parents' biggest pride and joy was to be able to provide and facilitate this. Even though, as I said, we weren't an uber-religious family, and <clears throat> I certainly w didn't take to uh, Jewish studies uh, swimmingly, if you will, but... Um, it's one of the stronger memories of my youth. Was uh, It was during Desert Storm and uh, traveling to Israel at that time with my mom and dad and being a bar mitzvah at the wall. And as we, uh, we went to the wall like a day or two before the actual bar mitzvah and they separate the men and women in that archaic, uh, sexist fashion that many religions do. Um, so you... Women cannot pray at the wall in the same area as men, and that's what tradition calls for, and that's just how it is. So my dad and I separated from my mom, and uh, we were ambling around, uh, kind of just walking, as I recall, and an, an elderly, like I do look like he was 100 years old, in the August sun uh, in Jerusalem, as hot as balls, and he was in, you know, the three-piece black suit with the hat, and... Um, he had the talis on underneath, and um, he approached my father and I, and um, he broke out the tefillin. It's a sort of like leather apparatus for prayer, for like, uh, it's very, you know, old school, traditional Orthodox Judaism. Um, you wear tefillin on your head and on your forearm and hand, and you say a prayer. And uh, at that moment, it was really the only time in my life that I saw my father weep. Was as when this hundred-year-old like Hasid or super Orthodox man approached us at the wall in Jerusalem and applied the tefillin to my father Lloyd, and. Um, and we said a prayer. Um, and the prayer was for uh, my father's father, Sam. And it was the mourner Scottish. So just witnessing this moment from a few feet away and seeing the powerful emotional reaction that my normally stoic and often 
borderline detached emotionally. My dad, um, what came over him and the way he was just crying, I'll never forget the expression on his face. And uh, it stuck with me. And uh, as did the Kaddish itself. Now back to the temple at Burning Man. And I only knew like the first eight lines of it. But I knew it. And I knew my dad knew it. And I just got up and I stood up and I started to say the mourner's kaddish. Yikadal v'yikadash me. Anyway. Um, and then I just heard voices. People saying it with me and actually like helping me through it. Um, it. Turns out they were Israelis and they just heard me saying the kaddish and of course they knew the kaddish and... We stood there, the four of us, and we said the mourner's cottage for my dad at the temple, burning me. Um, when I thought of the ways that I could honor him and get some kind of closure out of the fact that I couldn't be there when he passed on, I never imagined what would have transpired in that temple and how it would have made me feel and how it would have resonated with fellow burners. So in a f absolute funk, haze, completely delirious from lack of sleep and emotional overload and joy and obviously dark, deep pain, all just... Uh, smorgasbord of energy inside of me and I couldn't even find my bike it had gotten dark I didn't have my lamps on me because I didn't intend to be there that long I had obviously a lamp on the bike but not much light and it was pretty dusty it wasn't like a full-blown dust storm but it was very low hanging dust and visibility even with lights was piss poor and I was just kind of, I didn't even know which direction my camp was in. And I, you couldn't see all the lit up camps because of the dust and the fog. And I just remember just the feeling of helplessness. It was getting colder, dark, foggy. I had just had this super intense purge. And... So I was kind of like high from that, but also like drained. And then in the distance, I could just like hear the faint sounds. I could hear the faint sounds and the beats and the unmistakable vibe of random rap on the Burners Without Borders art car somewhere in the ether and fog. And I just followed the sound and let the bass thump bring me in. And I never did get like on the car area or like onto the art car itself or really commiserate with anyone. I just sort of lurked in the outskirts and let the music fill me and uh, just, you know, kind of put 
a period at the end of the sentence because it was Rab's music uh, when I was locked up and prevented from mourning my father as I saw fit, or as, not as I saw fit, I should say, prevented from mourning my father as uh, tradition dictates and how you'd want to be with your mother and your family and your father's friends. Um, Shout out to the homies, my, my people that went to my dad's funeral in my abstentia. You know who you are. And that, that's love. But also, you know, I wasn't able to be there and I was uh, comforted by the morning mix from Faye on Bohemian Groove. The Random Rabs music played me played to me uh, in some kind of way and then you know 16 months later in the Nevada desert Black Rock City uh, I saw him that morning and then uh, found him after the temple and I just wanted to tell that story um, so that my reverence for Random Rab uh, could be uh, understood uh, in no uncertain terms. And I sincerely hope that, uh, you know, I didn't lose anybody with this Megillah, but I think the payoff is worth it. And it was uh, one of the more treasured uh, lessons, and uh, I, was, I should say, jewels that have come out of the darkness that was that year of my life and somewhere my father's you know first like random what but uh, he always took a great joy out of sort of ribbing me about the obscure nature of my newest finds but also uh, he took great pleasure in joy and just what I got out of music and the relationships that have uh, come into my life and the experiences that I've enjoyed through the music and the music uh, culture so yeah somewhere my dad is like random huh and then uh, nodding in uh, just appreciation so Lloyd if you're out there we miss you and uh, love is forever
Yes, indeedy. That was the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. And it comes to you from Dave Tipper. song is called Cloaked. And it was composed and released in memoriam for Dave Tipper's own father, who had passed away that very same day. And uh, what a touching, emotive piece of music in tribute to my own father, a song for my father, uh, Lloyd Getz, who we discussed quite a bit this week, and I miss very, very much. So uh, with that, allow me to thank Random Rab, and uh, thank everybody who's tuned in to the Upful Life podcast. This is episode six. I'm your host, B. Getz, and I'm signing off. We'll see you next time.